journey into the Bible and explore its hidden text and rich wisdom. Join Adol Kazilski Mondays at 1 p.m. for the trip of a lifetime. Shavuot Tov, Shavuot Tov. Hope everybody is keeping well and I hope you enjoyed the Shabbos project. I certainly did. Loved to walk around. Actually went with my daughters and grandchildren to the park, which is something that we haven't done in a long time. And I said, gee, you see, Shabbos Project had to get us to do that. Um, but I saw a lot of people walking around and I hope that everybody enjoyed it. And yes, you certainly should enjoy Shabbos every single week. I gotta tell you, I can't wait for Shabbos every week. I cannot count quick enough the hours for, for Shabbos to come in. We are just let go of the crazy world around us, all the electronic media coming in and out. And just actually having 26 hours of tranquility. We'd love to know how your Shabbos project was. Did you do anything interesting? Or did you perhaps experience Shabbos for the first time? Um, I'd love to know um, what or how you experienced the Shabbos project. But here on 101.9 High FM, we are learning the Chumash. We are learning the five books of Moses. We are learning Genesis. We are in Parashat Vayishlach. And uh, we are following the travels and trials and tribulations of our forefather, Yaakov Avinu, who, for, for all intents and purposes, probably the most personable um, of, the, of, the, of the forefathers, because he just, he goes through hassles like we do, go hassles with family, hassles with Parnassa, with earning a livelihood, hassles with the insecurity of moving countries, hassles with kids. Um, there's much to learn from him. Um, and the way he views life. And so we are going to continue our journey as we normally do. We finished up last week where he he dusts off his encounter with his brother Asaph. And we know from there that uh, he's to meet Asaph at the end of days, which we discussed at at length there as well. And we are going to start on chapter 33, verse 18. And we are going to carry on following the journey of what happened to uh, Jacob as he moves on back to the land of Israel where he's going to land up and settle even though we all know that in settling he is not going to have peace and quiet. But something extraordinary happens, a very, very difficult piece of Chumash but let's see how far we get and let's see where we go. So look at chapter 33. Look at verse 18. Yavo Yaakov Shalem. Yaakov comes to a place called Shalem. It's Ir Shem. It's a city in Shem. Be'eretz Canaan. It is now in the land of Israel. Bevomi Padan Aram. When he came from Padan Aram, that's where he was traveling from. Vayichen et Pnei He settles um, with a view of the city. Now, it's very, very interesting is that he, or sorry, he, he doesn't arrive um, in the city of Shalem. He arrives complete, my mistake. Yaakov arrives complete in the city of Shechem. Why does the Torah go and say he arrived complete? He arrived safely, so to speak. Well, there were many, many things that were stacked up against him. Let's just go through them again. Um, firstly, is that he only married when he was 84 years old. That's that's pretty old for all of us. We're already ending our lives at that point in time. 
Um, and the Torah says he was shalem, he was complete, because he, he remained celibate for 84 years. That's an extraordinary feat and something that, you know, can be certainly looked up to. Secondly, he arrived back in the land of Israel shalem safely. How? Because he arrived in peace and he arrived in friendship. Um, he had enemies, they tried to defeat him, but he had, but most had made peace with him and he didn't have anybody looking now to kill him. The third reason he arrived Shalem and is that he had great success. We know that he was very prosperous as God had promised him. Um, remember when he landed up in Haran, when he went down to Lavan, he was penniless. He didn't even have the clothes on his back because Asaph's son stole them. Okay. Um, he was really, really on the bottom rung of poverty. He was now whole in wealth, whole in uh, children. And so he was shalem. He was complete. He was safe. The fourth reason given as to why he was safe is that uh, we know that the angel that he fought with, Asaph's angel, had dealt him a very, very strong blow in his hip, had broken his hip joint. And if you remember, we said the sun shone and it completely healed him. And so the Torah is saying that he's shalem, he's complete. So people wouldn't think that he came back to the land of Israel crippled. The fifth reason why he was shalem is that he continued to, to feed the status quo. He would send gifts to Asav every month during the nine years he spent in Beit El, etc., etc. And even though he kept on giving, sending gifts to keep his brother at bay, it never diminished his wealth at all. God made up for it. He lost absolutely nothing. There is another way that we can look at completeness of, 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 of being safe. And that is during the 20 years that Yaakov worked for Lavan, we know that he had no time to study. He himself said, um, you know, he worked from, from the time the, the sun came up until way late, late night. And we know that when one doesn't continue engaging in um, intellectual uh, thinking and of learning Torah, uh, if, you, if you don't, your mind is like, it's like a knife. It, it becomes rusty if it's not sharpened. Um, and one who doesn't study, eventually what? He forgets. But Yaakov was whole. He was shalem. means he remembered everything he had ever learned in, in the yeshivat of Shem Ver And he was still as sharp and as clever and as knowledgeable as he was before he left to Padan Aram. And finally, um, the people of Shem promised Yaakov that they would protect him from his enemies. So overall, he was in a pretty good space. Obviously, now we're going to see that that doesn't last forever, and he lands up in, in, in you know going through a lot of trials and tribulations. But at this point in time, the Torah goes and says he arrived intact. He arrived in one piece. He arrived safely in the city of Shechem, and he plonks himself up uh, with a view of the city. And then what does he do? Vayiken et chelkatasade asher sham ohalo. He buys a piece of open land where he pitches his tents from the son of Hamor, um, the father of Shechem, for 100 kasitas. Now, a kasita um, is a biblical equivalent of money. Um, it's equivalent to a seller. A seller is a coin weighing the same as two shekels. It's approximately about a dollar. So you're looking about a hundred dollars in modern money. 
the Cassetto was at that time the universally accepted coin. Now, Jacob didn't really want to sit and, you know, um, hang around Shrem. He was very um, adamant that he needed to go into uh, to to go to to reach his father Isaac and to, and to see his father Yitzchak there, okay. Um, but what he wanted to do is he wanted to build an altar to thank God for all that God had done to him. And in order to build an altar that is on on at a city, you need to own it. Um, Abraham and Yitzchak also obviously built many altars. But they didn't have to buy the property because most of their altars um, were were built in mountains and in, in other uninhabited places. But now because he was in a place of habitation, he actually had to buy the, the piece of land in order that he could build the altar there so he could ensure that the altar, in fact, would not get destroyed. This is 101.9 High FM. Hi FM, your station of choice since 2008. And this is Adel Kozilski. I care a lot standing uh, behind the mic every Monday teaching Torah to you. I hope you care too. And I always love to have your interaction. If you have a question or a comment, 34519 is our SMS line. 0618951019, our telegram number. We are... Learning about our forefather, Yaakov, he's just arrived on the outskirts of the city of Shechem. He's bought a piece of land. By Yatsev Shammizbeach, this is now verse 20 of chapter 33. Um, he builds an altar there. By Yikra lo kel elakei Yisrael. He calls it the God. God is the God of Israel. Um, now that... Uh, God has been with Yaakov. He has rescued him. He names the altar after God, and that would serve as a constant reminder uh, for him and for everybody afterwards of the miracle that God had done, and he helped. He was trying to publicize it. Now we're told that Yaakov actually arrived on the outskirts of Shechem on a Friday, shortly before sunset, and there was something very interesting as to why he had to buy the land, um, not only did he have to buy the land because he wanted to build an altar, but we know there is a halakha, there is a Jewish law that prohibits one from moving outside one's house um, in a strange place that does not belong to you. It's the law on Shabbat um, of transferring things from a private domain into a public domain and vice versa. Now, this would generally apply when one um, goes on holiday or goes somewhere where one does not own um, the property or is not permanently um, affixed at the property. Um, that means that on Shabbat, you cannot carry outside your house. Many, many cities have overcome that by putting up what we know today as an Eruv, that is um, putting up a demarcation where um, through uh, various um, halachic dispensations and legalities, one makes an entire area common property to everybody and therefore allows one to carry on Shabbat. Johannesburg has such uh, an Eruv, so does Cape Town. 
um, but not on the in the whole of Johannesburg, but in certain areas, which if you are interested in, you may go to the um, the Beth Den website and go see which areas, which suburbs are included in the Eruv. So that allows me to walk out of my house and say, carry a challenge to my next door neighbor or to push a baby outside, etc., Etc. If one goes into a city, albeit that it is highly, it's inhabited a lot with Jews, but there is no Eruv, then you are not allowed to carry out from the private into the public domain or vice versa on Shabbat. So I'm a go and tell us that this was a problem for Yaakov. He needed um, to move between tents and so he bought the piece of land for a uh, hundred kasita. And that allowed him then to make an Eruv, and he was able to walk in. Uh, it's, it's within 2,000 Amos, which is which is a pretty wide area. I'm not a rabbi; I don't know exactly how long, but it, it, it's pretty it's pretty it's pretty long. Okay. One of the other things is that um, Yaakov also bought a piece of the land of Israel. Because he had a great love for the land of Israel. And we're told that when a person buys a small house in the land of Israel or a plot of land there, it is very, very precious in Hashem's eyes. And it is as just as if that person purchases a, a portion in the world to come. Now, I'm not the Aliyah department, but certainly it is a mitzvah to own property in the land of Israel. And um, it's something that I know um, has become more and more um, an item on people's lists today and something that you can do much, much more easier, easily than in, in days gone by. We're also told that Yaakov uh, set up a marketplace and he sold merchandise cheap, uh, cheaply there because he said, well, he's enjoying, um, deriving enjoyment from hanging around in the city. He also wants to benefit the people. So, what we see over here is that when one um, comes into a city, one shouldn't just be a taker. One shouldn't just be a, uh, a, a person who just derives benefit from where he stays, but you should go out and make improvements because people then around you would obviously be, be more grateful, won't treat you so much as a stranger, will remain you, rem uh, they will remember you for what you have done, and it's important that one does those things. Now, I'm going to tell you a very, very long story um, from the Gomorrah um, about how one interacts with the outside world and how one needs to put in effort in order to, to change one's surroundings. It's a very, very famous story. Um, and it is a story that generally is told on Lagba Omer, hint, hint, so you'll know who it's about. So the Gemara goes, the Talmud tells us that um, there once was three great rabbis, Rabbi Yehuda and Rabbi Yossi and Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. And they were walking once together down the street and accompanying them was a man called Yehuda ben Gerim. So it was these three rabbis, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shuman Bar Yochai, and this guy called Yehuda ben Gerim. And they were strolling down the street. They were in occupied territory insofar as the Romans had occupied the land of Israel, had started making 
um, the lives of the Jews pretty miserable. Rabbi Yehuda starts a conversation and says the following. You know, the Romans have been very beneficial to our land, for they have built us markets, bridges, and bathhouses. Rabbi Yossi, the second rabbi, hears what Rabbi Yehuda has to say and says nothing. Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai disagrees. He says the Romans didn't build these things for the benefit of others, as our forefather Yaakov did, but only for their good. They built marketplaces for they wanted to open up houses of prostitution. They built bathhouses so they could just relax. And they constructed bridges so they would be able to collect tolls from us. So here we have three rabbis and, as usual, three opinions. Rabbi Yehuda thinks it's very positive what the Romans have done. Rabbi Yossi doesn't render an opinion. And Rabbi Shimon is bitingly um, aggressive <laughs> against the Romans. Anyway, this Yehuda ben Gerim that was walking with them listens attentively. And when he gets home, he happens to say over the supper table the conversation that the that he heard. And you know how, how things go. Today they go much faster than they did because we've got uh, WhatsApp and we've got, we've got uh, all sorts of ways that we can communicate with other people. But Lashon Horror is Lashon Horror. Rechilis is Rechilis. Chatter, chatter, chatter. News of the rabbi's debate spread. The Roman authorities hear about it and the, it comes to the ears of the emperor Hadrian. Hadrian hears this and he issues out an edict. And this is the edict for the rabbis. He said, Rabbi Yehuda, because he spoke well of our rule, he'll be the first among speakers. If he's in an academy, nobody may speak before him and all must wait until he's finished before they speak. And he's also allowed to, um, to head any academy that he wants to because he spoke positive about us. Rabbi Yossi, he hears my empire being slandered and he remains silent. I am going to um, have an edict now that he needs to be exiled. And in fact, he gets exiled to a city called Sephoris, which is a city near Tzfat. But Rabbi Shimon, who had the chutzpah to talk bad about the Roman exile, he maligned the empire and he shall be put to death. Well, from that entire conversation, Rabbi Shimon, the news of, of the impending edict on Rabbi Shimon it arrives at him and they decide they better run away before the Romans come to fetch him. So him and his son, Rabbi Elazar, um, conceal themselves in their academy, in their yeshiva where they were learning and they don't go outside. And every day, Rabbi Shimon's wife would bring them bread and water that sustained him and then he heard um, a little bit later, that the Romans were quite aggressive. They were now um, pressing much harder to search for them. So he says to his son, Rabbi, Rabbi Elazar, how much can a woman take? If the Romans capture uh, my wife, your mother, and under torture, she may very well tell us, tell them where we are hiding. So that very night, they sneak out of the yeshiva. They come to a town which today is called Pekin or Bukia. It's about nine and a half miles away from, from Tzfat. 
and they hid in a cave. And this is the very famous story of how Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son Elazar land up in the cave. They move into the cave. In the Hebrew year 3,886, it's the year 126 of the Common Era. They understood now they will be there for a very long time. They didn't want their clothes to wear out. So as we know, they took them off. They buried themselves up to their neck in sand. And all day long, they would study Torah um, when they had to pray. Shachrit, Mincha, and Marev, the three uh, prayers during the day, in the course of the day, they would put on their clothing. But after that, they would move it so they wouldn't wear them out. And God was was very uh, pleased with their sacrifice. He had mercy over them, and he caused, as we know, a carob tree to grow near the mouth of the cave. Uh, a spring also appeared, and they then were assured of a fresh water supply. And guess what, folks? They stayed there for 12 years. One day, the prophet Eliyahu Hanavi appears and announces who will inform Bar Yochai that the Roman emperor has died and his decreed has been annulled. So the men understood, Rabbi Shimon understood that Hadrian had passed away, which means now that it wasn't on their heads anymore, that, that the Romans were looking for them. So they left the, clay, the, the, the cave. But you know what happens when you stay in a cave for 12 years and all you do is study Torah is you lose perspective on the physical world. So off they go, they leave the cave, they meander around town, they come and they see people plowing and planting, and they say to each other, how can these people abandon spiritual pursuits and engage in the worldly? Like we've just seen the beauty of Torah, how you have to land up staying, you know, uh, and learning Torah and being spiritual, etc. How can they take such mundane work and do it themselves? Surely they need to spend their, their time in the Torah, and their indignation at people not having their priorities right, getting involved in the physical world instead of the spiritual world, their, their anger was so great that every time they saw people doing this, they looked at the people, and the people just got burnt. Um, this happened for a little while. Um, everywhere they went, there was destruction, and so a butt call, a heavenly voice came out and said, did you come out to destroy this world if you did return to the cave? So uh, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and his son went back to the cave. They spent a, another year, and they then said, well, if you know, if a wicked person goes to Gehenna, goes, uh, goes to hell in, in the world to come, the most that they can stay there is for 12 months. So we've stayed for, for another 12 months. So they basically stayed in total for 13 years. They left again, and in fact, a butt call, a heavenly voice told them they could travel everywhere. And so they were traveling around, and Rabbi Elazar wasn't, wasn't, wasn't doing so well in so far, far as every time he gazed at something, it would burst into flames. And now his father, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, because he was greater than his son, Rabbi, Rabbi Elazar, rectified it all the time. And he kept on saying to his son, my son, my son, it is sufficient for the world that just the two of us study Torah. Stop going around and destroying it. One Friday afternoon, they they saw an old man running and he was holding two branches of myrtle in his hand. And uh, they said to the old man, why are you taking myrtle? The old man said to honor the Shabbat. 
So they replied back to him, why are you taking two branches? Isn't one enough? So the old man said, one says, Shamor v'zachor. It's a Shabbat that you should keep the Shabbat and you should remember the Shabbat. Okay, so that is why I've got two. So Rabbi Shimon turned around and said to his son, you see, look how precious the mitzvahs are for the Jews, even though they do engage in the mundane. And this calmed his son down and he refrained from his destructive acts. Now, there's another guy called Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair. He was Rabbi Shimon's father-in-law. And he heard that his son-in-law had left the cave. And so he invited his son-in-law to come over to his house. Obviously, they wanted to prepare for, 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 for the dinner that they were invited to. So Rabbi Shimon went to the bathhouse and he happened to bump into his father-in-law, Rabbi Pinchas Ben Yair there. And he sees Rabbi Shimon's skin. His skin was covered with scabs from sitting buried in the sand all those years. Rabbi Shimon was in actually in an, an, a huge amount of pain, and his father-in-law felt so sorry for him, and he started crying. And Rabbi Pinchas said to his son-in-law, Rabbi Shimon, Woe is to me that I have seen you like this. So Rabbi Shimon replies, Woe would be to me. If you could not see me like this, I've learned so much Torah in the cave. Before I enter the cave, I would ask you a question and you would give me 12 answers. Now you can ask me and I can give you 24 answers. And in fact, we know that Rabbi Shimon Baruchai wrote the Zohar, the, the main Kabbalistic work, while he was sitting in the cave. So Rabbi Shimon says, then to his father-in-law, since God has done this miracle for me, I must do something now to benefit the community. And where do I learn this from? From my forefather, Yaakov. He benefited from the community after God had miraculously saved him from Laban and Asaph. Some say he built bathhouses. Others said that he designed a coin for them. Others say there's other Mephoshim, other uh, guys that say that he, he built a marketplace with shops for businesses, but he says, I too think and feel that I want to um, benefit the city. So when he asked the citizens what was needed, they replied, our master, there is a large open piece of land near the city where there is a question as to whether a body is buried there or not. Now, Kohanim, priests are not allowed to enter a field containing a dead body. And all the time they're walking around the field wherever they wish, whenever they wish to go in that direction. Can you please go and investigate the field and let us know whether or not, because you're such a holy, holy person, whether or not um, there is a dead body buried in there. We're going to just continue after the short break. IFM 101.9 megahertz of life. So here we have Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai um, going to investigate a field to see if there's any record of it ever having been a cemetery of sorts. Finally, an old man comes up to him and he says, you know, on this very field, Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai once planted lupine bushes. Okay, now the lupine bushes came from the coins truma offerings. And he later pulled them up with his own hands, which indicated then to Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai that if Rabbi Yochanan ben Zakkai, who was a priest, um, 
planted those bushes, there must be no defilement in the area. He would never have gone into it. And besides, he also planted truma. He planted things that they would have to use afterwards, and it must grow in an undefiled place. So Rabbi Shimon says, are you not? I'll do the same. He got a bunch of this bush called lupines. He began scattering them throughout the field. And wherever a corpse was buried, it miraculously rose to the surface of the ground. And then he was able to mark all the unclean places and where the ground remained whole and hard. He knew that it was undefiled. The old man was very impressed and he began announcing through the streets, everybody, everybody, Rabbi, look what Rabbi Shimon did. He purified a cemetery. Um, so that's what actually happened there. And then um, a little bit later, Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai bumps into none other than Yehuda ben Gerim, the guy who had caused him so much anguish by repeating his views regarding the Romans. It says that Rabbi Shimon fixed him with a burning gaze and he just crumpled into the ground as a pile of bones. So Rabbi Shimon um, was, was, was very, uh, came out an incredibly, incredibly holy guy. And um, they, 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 they actually, at one point in time, if I recall later, that a person who was, was an atheist, a non-believer, decided that he is going to try show up this great rabbi that now was making his rounds around town, fixing things up in the area, and he brought a dead body to the field that Rabbi Shimon had purified, and he buried him there. And he went up to Rabbi Shimon in a very cocky way and said, are you the one who permitted Kohanim to enter the field? And Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai said, yes, I did. So he says, look, I'll show you a corpse um, that in the field that you did not find. And the two of them went to the place, and the non-believer dug up the fresh corpse that he had just buried. Um, and with his powers of divine inspiration, Rabbi Shimon knew what really, really happened. And he said, I decree that the one on top should go down and the one below should come up. And no sooner had he said those words that the corpse came to life, he climbed out of the grave. And alas, the non-believer collapsed and fell dead into the open <laughs> into the open grave. And then the, the, the Gemara goes to tell us that Rabbi Shimon accompanied now this newly uh, resurrected dead man and he came and spent Shabbos with him and God, and then he thanked God for all the miracles that he did. So this long-winded story is about Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, um, but what the lesson is that we need to learn is that we need to be part of society. We need to make changes in society and we need to, um, to, to give positively to our communities. And for sure, in South Africa, this is a hallmark of South African Jewry that we're not only to ourselves, but we are certainly for other people. I want to share one more story that's an interesting one as well. It's about a very holy rabbi by the name of Rabbi Yehuda Sharaf. He lived in the 1600s. He died in 1675. He was born in 1602. And his, his shita, his modus operandi was that when he would come into a town, he would double check the shaykhet. He would check the guy who is shechting for the, 
for 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 the community because then he would know the piousness not only of the shoichet but also of the city that they actually cared about their kashrut. So one time he arrives in a strange city and uh, he lands up at a place where he meets the shoichet and he just through two minutes of conversation can see and work out that in fact the shoichet um, was a total ignoramus and he refused to eat any of the meat that the guy had slaughtered. But he wanted to expose the, the shoichet um, and that night, um, so he worked out a whole plan. What did he do? That night during the meal, he had a girl bring him a sealed letter, which to all appearances looked as if it was sent from his wife. And he was sitting at a, at a meal with a lot of community leaders who had come obviously to honor him, to honor the rabbi, and amongst them, of course, was the shoichet. So he opens up this envelope and reads this letter. In, well, it looks, he, everybody sees him reading the letter. He's obviously reading to him quietly. But at the end of the reading of the letter, he bursts into tears. And the shoichet comes up to him and he says to him, what's wrong? What's wrong? You look so, so upset. What can we do for you? So this rabbi, Yehuda Sharaf, says, terrible news. I had five daughters. Their names were Shechia, Derasa, Halada, Hagrama, and Ikur. And I'm very, very, very particularly upset about my daughter, Shehiva, because she was my favorite. And the shaykhid looks at him. And he begins to console him and say, don't worry, you know, we'll, we'll do things for you and whatever have you. The rabbi looked at him, stopped the facade, turned around to the community and he said, look at your shaykhet. Your shaykhet doesn't even know the names of the five movements that disqualify a slaughter and renders the animal non-kosher. Because what did he do? He used the five names of of disqualifications um, when when you are slaughtering an animal. For example, shechia means that there's a slight pause um, or interruption while making the cut. That renders the animal unkosher. Darasa is cutting the throat by pressing the knife rather than by moving it firmly back and forth. So if you do that, you render the meat not kosher. Halada is when you stick the knife under any portion of the uncut skin. Hagrama is making the slanting cut in the wrong part of the neck. And Ikur is when you tear out the tissue rather than cutting it. And so he named his five daughters, those five things. And if the, if the shaykhut was anything worth his salt, he would have said something. So this is a lesson, um, a further lesson that not only should one, you know, go out and do positive and, and, and uplift, but one should also look at the negative that is in their community and make an effort there as well to, to, to make things better. And, uh, certainly this is not only from, from living in the city, but even if you're passing by a city and you pick up a deficit in the city or something that you can personally make things better, then so be it. Go and do it because that is how Yaakov behaved.
This is one of one point nine high FM. High FM one hundred and one point nine megahertz of life. And that concludes chapter thirty three of Genesis. As you can see, as always. There are, there is so much to learn when we are learning Chumash. Today we learned about our civic duties. And I always sit and marvel at the Hashgacha Pratis, at the divine, um, footstep, imprint, guidance that we receive every single day. We're about to go to, uh, to municipal elections. Um, and as always, it is imperative as part of the community to go out and vote. And to vote for those people that you deem will be able to uplift the community, to make the community a better place for every person, Jew and Gentile alike, to live in peace and harmony and health um, with a menuchat nefesh, with a peace of mind. So this is what we learn from Yaakov Avino. He was very, very much involved in the surroundings around him. And I encourage that with you too. And with that idea... I wish you a brilliant week ahead, and I look forward to speaking to you again, same time, same place, next week. Have a good one.